Welcome to Season 3 of A New Voice of Freedom. The podcasts are taken from the four volumes In Defense of Christianity, written by Ronald Keith Messer. Podcast 56 is entitled Letters of John to the Seven Churches, Thyatira. One way to read the book of Revelation is to treat it as a chiasm. Chiasm is a form of Hebrew poetry in which the end is a repetition of the beginning. In other words, the first three chapters of the book of Revelation are repeated in the last three or four chapters of the book of Revelation. It takes the form of ABCCBA. It isn't an exact repetition that would be meaningless. The information is in the differences. However, you will find similar phrases, but more importantly, you will find that the images of the end of the book of Revelation are the key to understanding the images of the beginning of the book of Revelation. They are mutually dependent. One is incomplete without the other. I am going to use chiasm to analyze the letter of John to the church of Thyatira. First, we are working with two time periods. The first three chapters relate to the seven churches in the first century A.D. They are actual churches in actual cities that have been proven to exist during the first century A.D. The letters, though addressed to real people, speak of a future time. The last four chapters of the book of Revelation occur in that future time. It is 2,000 years later, at the beginning of the millennium, during the second coming of Christ. Among other things, we know that because the description of Christ in chapter 1 describes Christ as he appeared to John shortly after his resurrection, and the description of Christ in chapter 19 is clearly the Christ of the second coming. The images tell everything. The two time periods are very clear. The first time period, or the period in which the seven letters were written to the churches, occurred sometime during the first century A.D. Christ has been crucified and resurrected. John, one of the first apostles, is a prisoner on the Isle of Patmos. So we know that the vision occurred between 35 A.D. and 100 A.D., probably toward the latter end of the century. The church is rapidly growing among the Gentiles and clashes with Roman idolatry and idolatrous practices. The vision of John, however, is not limited to the first century A.D. It covers the entire history of the world. Therefore, the first part of Revelation refers to the Christian church of the first century. The latter part of Revelation refers to the second coming of Christ, 2,000 years later, at the beginning of the millennial reign prophesied by Isaiah and John, and carries us to the end. The only way we can understand the imagery of the letters is to keep in mind both time periods. In Revelation 2 and 3, Christ is talking about what will come. In Revelation 19 through 22, Christ is talking as if the future has already come. It is a truly brilliant transition, and the blessings are even greater than the church had imagined, for Christ gives more details. I shall refer to the first three chapters of Revelation as the first century A.D., and the last chapters of Revelation as the millennium. I shall connect the two time periods through the use of parallelism. In other words, with Linda's help, I shall quote directly from the letter to the church of Thyatira in the period during the first century A.D. And through the use of parallelism, meaning the repetition of images, I shall select those passages of Scripture from the end of Revelation that point directly back to the letter written to the church of Thyatira. In the beginning of the letter, Christ first compliments the church of Thyatira for their virtues. 
I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Since the letters are intended for every Christian, it is clear that charity, service, faith, and patience are virtues, and that we should all emulate those virtues if we want to receive the promises assigned to the churches. In the letter to the church of Thyatira, however, serious sins are listed, and if those who commit those sins do not repent, serious consequences will follow. Notice that the prophecies to the early saints are marked for a future date, while the prophecies regarding the second coming are the fulfillment of those prophecies. First century, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her a space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Revelation 2, 20-22 Millennium For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. Revelation 19.2 It is a warning to all members of the church that we should keep the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Other chapters in the book of Revelation describe what happens to those who don't keep the seventh commandment. Look at chapter 18, for example, which speaks of the fall of Babylon. That theme is repeated in chapters 21 and 22. What is said to the saints of the first century is expanded to the saints of the beginning of the millennium. For those who don't repent, we find out what great tribulation and what avenge the blood of his servants means. First century, and I will kill her children with death. Revelation 2.23 Millennium, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murders and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Revelation 21, 7-8 Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without our dogs and sorcerers, and whoremongers, and murderers, and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. Revelation 22, 14-15 We learn that Christ is talking about spiritual death to those who don't repent. They fall under two condemnations. The first curse is that they will have a part in the lake of fire. The lake of fire is forever, but a part means that they won't stay there forever. That is reserved only for the sons of perdition. Those who have not committed the unpardonable sin, but did not repent of their sins, will remain in hell until they have paid the uttermost farthing. When they are released, however, though they will receive some reward for their works, they will not be allowed into the celestial city or the new Jerusalem. They do not join those obedient saints who have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. They remain without, meaning whatever the reward will be, it will not be celestial. This is made clear in the following. 
first century, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Revelation 2.23 Millennium He that is unjust, let him be unjust still, and he which is filthy, let him be filthy still, and he that is righteous, let him be righteous still, and he that is holy, let him be holy still. Revelation 22, 10-12 Read in the light of the second coming, that previous verse makes more sense. Christ is not talking about the final judgment. He is talking about his second coming. When he comes, it is too late to repent, for the wicked will be destroyed at his coming. They will have to face the judgment of God. Those who didn't repent while they could must pay for their sins before being rewarded for the good works they did. In other words, they will be swept off the earth and cannot repent of the sins they did, nor add to the works they should have done. In the economy of language, Christ, speaking of the time of death, told John, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he that is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. By analogy, that is true for all of us at the point of death, which can come at any time through accident, illness, or old age. In effect, Christ is telling us to repent while it is day, or in other words, while we can, and not wait to the point of death. In the afterlife, those who didn't repent will have to pay for their sins, or in other words, have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, before they can be rewarded for their good works and assigned a kingdom of glory. We learn in the book of Revelation that only the sons of perdition remain in the lake of fire. Few people are so totally evil that there is not some good in them. In the final judgment, Christ will do everything he can to reward us. He is not a God of wrath. He is a God of mercy. In Revelation 22, Christ reveals, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. Revelation 22, 10-12 Even terrible sinners have some virtues. Some have painted Christ in a corner in a kind of Jonathan Edwards hyperbole, justice without mercy. Christ is our Savior and Redeemer. However, he is both perfectly just and perfectly merciful. To remain God, he must remain perfectly just. However, to be merciful, he atoned for our sins, thus satisfying the law of justice for those who accept it and repent. God cannot save us against our will. Everything Christ does, he does to protect the agency of man. He does not want anyone to suffer. That is why he atoned for our sins. He will save anyone he can without violating agency. Though the law of justice must have its day for those who don't repent, the law of mercy is very, very broad. And once those who are not sons of perdition have paid for their sins, they will be rewarded for their virtues. It may be hard to believe, but the sons of perdition rejected the mercy of Christ even when they had perfect knowledge of his power. They willfully placed themselves outside the power of the atonement and openly rebelled against God. We know that the devil and his angels are sons of perdition, but there will only be a small number of sons of Adam who will become sons of perdition. Some may deny Christ because they refuse to take the time to know him, but atheists are not sons of perdition. In fact, no son of perdition is an atheist. Remember the words of James. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. 
The devils also believe and tremble. James 2.19 They become sons of perdition because they know Christ absolutely and still deny him. Some Christians may be quite surprised that proclaimed atheists on earth fared quite well at the judgment because their hearts were good. But for the record, they will acknowledge Christ at the judgment and will be very sorry they didn't take the time to know him on earth when he was so near. Obviously, once the unrepentant have paid for their sins, they don't have to keep suffering forever. However, many will not live with Christ in the New Jerusalem. They will occupy a place of lesser glory. That is their eternal damnation. Their progress will be curtailed. Paul refers to three degrees of glory, one compared to the sun, another to the moon, and another to the stars. Not everyone will inherit the third heaven spoken of by Paul, which is the celestial kingdom. In God's house are many mansions. The purpose of all scripture is to bring us to Christ, or it isn't scripture, it's philosophy. Every letter contains a specific promise. Of course, since the seven letters actually refer to the church as a whole, the number seven means wholeness or completeness or wholeness, then all the blessings are promised to those who remain faithful. Again, let's make the comparisons between the blessings stated in the period of the first century and the fulfillment stated in the period of the millennium. First century, And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. Revelation 2.26 Millennium He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Revelation 21.7 The faithful saints receive two grand promises. One, they will rule the nations, and two, they will be sons of God. That title is surely one of the greatest titles ever given to the faithful. For who is the only one referred to as the Son of God? It appears that Christ is going to give the faithful saints all that he has, just as the Father gave the Son all that he has. First century, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessel of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father. Revelation 2.27 Millennium, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Revelation 19.15 Christ is referring to the nations. In the scripture above, Christ gave his saints power over the nations. However, the nations come under great condemnation. They shall be as the vessels of a potter broken into shivers. In other words, all nations will be destroyed. There will be one ruler, and that is Christ, and all his saints shall be rulers under him. They shall be ruled by the rod of iron, or the word of God. Isaiah says that during the millennium the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. However, we cannot forget the sharp sword that is turned against the nations. That is what Christ means when he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Remember, when he comes the second time, he is clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. This horrendous war is described most vividly in the next verse. First century, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. Revelation 2.15 Millennium, and I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourself together unto the supper of the great God. 
that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast, and the king of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophets that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Revelation nineteen seventeen through 21 I don't believe there's a more gruesome image in Scripture. This refers to the great wars among the nations before the second coming of Christ caused by the wicked. It is obvious that the deaths will be so numerous and come so quickly that they won't have time to bury the dead. The wicked kill the wicked. The supper of the great God refers to the bodies of the dead being eaten by vultures and other carrion creatures. But for the saints, there will be safety, followed by tremendous blessings. First century, and I will give him the morning star. Revelation 2.28 Millennium I, Jesus, have sent mine angels to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bride and morning star. Revelation 22.16 Remember the promise that the faithful shall become his sons? Christ is the bright and morning star. And playing on the word star, Christ is the star of the book of Revelation. In fact, he is the star of all holy scriptures. As a reward, the faithful will receive the presence of Jesus Christ himself. They will live and reign with him. What in chapter 1 Christ called the mystery of the seven stars is now solved. Thank you for listening. Watch for our next podcast. In Defense of Christianity is available at RonaldMesser.com.